20 verses says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruin. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not many prevail, let let not man prevail, let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord, let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. In this first psalm of praise, we have a song that David sings from his heart to praise the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And you get a picture or a, a, a portrait for you of the coming king. Now, we have to remember that in the Old Testament, the kings of Israel are types and shadows of Christ. The throne in, in David's city, the throne in Jerusalem, is but a type of the eternal throne of Jesus Christ our Lord at the right hand of the Father. The, the, the nation, and as it was ordered, is but a type of the nation of God that exists in all of the nations that will be brought together at the throne at Jesus' second coming. And so we have here a shadow. It's a historical shadow. It's a real type. It's not a pretend verse. These are real people in real time, really experiencing hardship, okay? So put out of your mind, any of you who are, are, are having this struggle, what I'm talking about when I talk about types and shadows is not allegory. Let me tell you the difference. Just give you a little lesson here on studying the Bible. Allegory is when we take something that is not historical and has no real characters and time setting and place, and use that to teach a lesson. That's an allegory. 
And often people make the mistake of allegorizing the Scripture where it's not meant to be that way. There are allegories in the Bible, most famously in Galatians. Most famously in Galatians chapter 4. But there are allegories. This is not that. When I say type and shadow, this is what I mean. It is a historical person or a historical setting or the historical nation of Israel which prefigures for us by the sovereignty of God the person and work of Jesus Christ or the existence of his people in the church. Now, I didn't make that up. That's what the book of Hebrews says the Old Testament is. It tells us it is a book of types and shadows. All right? Jesus himself in Luke 24 says, the, All of that which you read in the Old Testament, in the law, in the history, in the Psalms, in the wisdom literature, that was all about me. All of it was about me. So the truest meaning is the, the meaning that applies to the person and work of Jesus Christ and the work that we, on, his, on our behalf, that he has done, okay? So in this, in this psalm, you're going to see it. David is writing as this type, as this shadow. He understands that there is one greater than him coming who will be the true king. He's only a, short, a small picture of what is coming. He's not the real thing. He's not the fulfillment, okay? And so... That's how we can take this text, know its history, but apply it today. Because we have received the, the fulfillment. And his name is Jesus Christ. Okay, so this praise psalm, though it is historical, is for us. It's not just for the people in David's day. The idea of praise toward God in all situations is being shown to us. Israel, historically, was attacked from every side, continuously under attack, continuously being oppressed. There were very few years of peace in all of the Old Testament for the nation of Israel. Most of their lives were spent being attacked, being oppressed, being led into captivity, coming back from captivity to rebuild a life only to be placed back into captivity. It is a, it is a difficult history that they serve. So when we see in the first 12 verses... Because that's how it divides up. The first 12 verses teach us of God's wonderful deeds in the past. David is praising God for what he has already done. Verses 13 through 20, the second half of the psalm, tell us that because of what we know God has already done, we trust that God will deliver us in the future. So you have the deliverance from the past, which assures us that God will work on our behalf in the future. And it's in that future sense that we know he has in mind his greater son. He has in mind the fulfillment of the promised Messiah. And so we want to look at that together today. There are those who argue that chapter 9 and 10 should be one psalm. They have some arguments for that. It is that way in the Vulgate, which is the Latin translation that Jerome wrote, which was used for the majority of church history as the basis for our scripture it is also in the Septuagint that we find the Greek translation of the Old Testament in 9 and 10 are combined into one. Why would they do that? They did that because what you see in chapter 9 is an acrostic. The first of all of the verses begins with the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet in verse 1 and proceeds down through the text, each verse beginning with the next letter. With the exception of a couple of uh, letters which are left out. And it's in this fragmentation, especially between 12 and 13, 
that there's some question, but it's there in the chapter 10. So the first half of the Hebrew is, uh, is in the acrostic in the first 20 verses in chapter 9. The second half of the Hebrew alphabet is in an acrostic, basically, from verse 1 in chapter 10 until the end of chapter 10. So, those who were writing and translating the scripture into Greek, that's where we believe it began, saw this and said, oh wait, these are meant to be one thing. They're meant to go together. I disagree. I disagree because I believe the greater weight is on separation. I believe that what we have here are partial acrostics. They're not meant to be complete. And the reason I say that, catch this, is because the Hebrew, which is what the Old Testament was written in, has it that way. There is a one unit and there is a second unit. They are not connected. So I think that there was a change made in the Greek translation that then changed for us that was maintained in the Vulgate, which was picked up in our English translations early on. But I think that we should see them as two different things. Also, the subject matter is somewhat different. And so we see uh, two different psalms. We have Psalm 9, which is a psalm of praise, and Psalm 10, which is a psalm of lament, we'll see next week. And so I believe that it's right that we have them separated. I tell you that because you will run into people who want to argue about the numbering of the Bible. The thing you need to remember is we have numbered it. Men place the numbers for verses and chapters where they are. When it was originally written, there were no numbers. There, were, there was none of this. And so it's, it's not something to debate about, really. What you should tell them is, I just take it the way it is in my scripture. And it's still God's word, whether they're 9 and 10 go together or they go separate. Okay, It's still God's word. Okay, They haven't done anything uh, detrimental to the scripture. So this first psalm of praise in chapter 9 comes to us. And we are forced to see the goodness of God. Now, I want us to see how. There, there are three ways that we see this. First of all, we should praise God with our heart, with our mind, and with our soul. In verses 1 and 2, we are commanded, or we are told, or we are shown that we praise God with all of our being. How do I see that? Let's look at it together. First of all, we praise God from happy or joyful hearts. We praise God from happy or joyful hearts. 1A, verse 1A. I will, be, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart, without reservation, without exception. With all that I am, I will praise God. This is so important for some of you. Some of you are going through the trials of life at this moment. You, you have sickness in your family. Your mother or father are struggling with disease. You yourself are struggling. Your children are in rebellion. They haven't come to God. You see life patterns that are destroying your friends all around you, and you are suffering, hurting for them. And your inclination, my inclination, is to say, I don't want to praise God for those things. I'm going to praise God for the good things, and I'm not going to praise Him for the bad. What does the verse say? I praise God with what? My whole heart. My whole heart, as Chuck told us, he gave us good instruction. I'm praising God for the fact that he is with me in my cancer. I don't know all the outcomes. I can't know all the situations that are coming, but I know God's got a purpose, and I know God's with me, and I will praise him with my whole heart. The heart is the center of the being. It's, the, it's in the Hebrew scriptures, it's representative of the whole man. 
So it's the whole heart in which we um, praise God. Or from a joyful heart. Look at uh, chapter 9 verse 2a. I will be glad. So we have the whole heart idea in 1a. And in the second part, chapter, second verse of the chapter, we have the joyful side. I will be glad and exult in you. You see that? So it's with a joyful heart that we praise God from all that we are. For every situation we encounter. Secondly, we see that the reason for this praise is evangelism. We praise in such a way that it leads us to evangelize the lost. Look at what David says in the second part of verse 1. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. Verse 2, second part. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. So it's in this verse that we see that his praise leads to evangelism. Praise is intended to come from your heart, from all of who you are, through your lips, to the ears of lost people, so that they say, who is their God? So you can answer the question. You know why your friends are not coming to Christ? Just being honest. You know why my friends often aren't coming to Christ? Because they never hear us praise Him. What they hear from us is what the Amalekites heard from the Israelites in the wilderness. <sighs> My life's a wreck. Everything around me has fell apart. My children are in rebellion. Nobody, my husband is, is, is abusive toward me. My, my, my weight is not what I want it to be. I don't have this possession that I think I deserve. These are the kinds of things that we utter in the presence of lost people, which makes them say, what? <laughs> Why do I want their God? They don't seem very pleased. He's not doing anything for them. But when we give the praise to God for the good, and we praise Him even in the bad, we, the door is wide for evangelism. Because the guy working next to you on the line hears you praising Him in the bad and says, at break time, hey man, your life feels like a wreck. I'm not trying to be mean or anything, but why are you so pleased? Why are you so satisfied? And it's at that moment that you say, oh, let me tell you, my life is a wreck. Everything's falling apart, but my God is with me. And you can know him just like I do. Praise is intended to lead to evangelism. Sometimes we're so busy complaining at God and fussing about our situations and telling the world about why things aren't the way they should be that we forget that we're losing our influence. So we should praise God with our heart, with our mind, and with our soul. I think David has in mind here what he was taught from young years through Deuteronomy where the, the writer Moses tells the people of Israel, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one God. And you shall love him with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. You should give everything you have, Israel, to God who is your God. And Paul would tell us, in everything give praise. Rejoice always. And again I say, rejoice. And Paul would say, comfort 
those who are facing trials with the same comfort with which you have been comforted. This is evangelistic praise. So lost people that are here with us, what you have exhibited, what you have seen exhibited in all of its forms, people with bowed heads, people crying, people singing loud, people singing softly with trembling in their voice, people raising their hands, people standing stoically apparently to you, baptisms happening, prayers being lifted up, songs being sung, scripture being read, and preaching going on, all of it, all of it only points you to one thing, and that is that Jesus Christ is enough. God is good. And He never leaves us or forsakes us. Praise is meant to be evangelistic. Paul says, when the lost people come in among you, let them see you and then question your God. Know who your God is. In 1 Corinthians 14, that's why he stresses order. If all manner of confusion is going on, lost people come in and say, I can't get anything out of this. But if it's ordered well, and if it's controlled praise through the Holy Spirit, they will come to God. They will come to God. And so, that's the first thing we see in this passage. Secondly, we should praise God for His protection. So specifically, with our whole hearts, we praise God with his, for His protection. And that's in verses 3 through 12. On a smaller scale, let's break it down a little farther. We could just say we should praise God for His protection. Amen. But what kind of protection? First of all, we see victory over our enemies. We praise God for the victory over our enemies. Now, here's where it's so important we keep it in context and then play it forward as a type. Look what he says in verse 3. David here says, as the king of Israel, that his enemies were turned back. And that when they came at him, they stumbled and perished. His cause and his throne were maintained because there was a greater throne and a greater cause. In verse 4. 5 says that God rebuked the nations. God has made the wicked perish. God has blotted out the names of His enemies forever and ever. He's brought the enemy to an everlasting ruin. And the city of their kingdom is rooted out. And their memory will perish from the earth. This is what David says about his earthly enemies. God is fighting for me, David says. It's not me, it's not the armies of Israel, but it's God that we trust. And God is the one at work for us. Now, as we think about that, we think, is that how we're supposed to pray, Carlton? I mean, the guy cuts me off on the traffic line, and I, and I say, Oh God, blot him out from memory. No. No. Jesus says, when someone is wicked towards you, Return good to them. And when they strike you on one cheek, you turn to them the other. And you love your enemy as yourself. Jesus said, you have heard it said, love your neighbor as yourself. But I tell you, love your enemy. Do good to those who hate you. Alright? So on an individual level, in a physical sense, our enemies are not truly to be cursed by us. We pray for their salvation. But the type that David is picturing for us is that he's ruling over a kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, and it is being delivered by God. His greater son, Jesus Christ, the son of David, sits on a heavenly throne and defeats a real enemy, 
What enemy does Jesus defeat? Peter said, your enemy, know this, your enemy. The reason you need to stand firm is your enemy is roaming about like a hungry lion, seeking to devour your faith. Don't ever misread what Peter means there. He's not roaring around consuming lost people. He's got them. And he can't ultimately take your spiritual life, Christian, but what he can consume is your temporal faith in Christ. He can take it from you. But thanks be to God that our King who sits on the throne and delivers us and protects us and defends us has defeated our enemy. So that line that's roaming about seeking whose faith he can eat is on a chain. God has marked out for him how far he can go. And he can go no farther. So it is in the name of Jesus that we withstand the attack of Satan saying to him that the Lord rebukes you. Not that I rebuke you. That's silliness. Satan scoffs at our rebuke. Okay? But what we can say is stand firm and the Lord rebuke you. What we can do in those moments of temptation is flee because we have been given a way of escape by Jesus Christ. Those aren't human inventions. When you're being tempted to sin, the way of escape is not your invention or your friend's invention. It is God's intervention. God intervenes in the moment of temptation and says, don't sin. Here's the way out. Now you get out. Right? Paul says to Timothy, his young son, in, in truth, Jesus has defeated the enemy of your youthful lust. Now flee from it. You don't have to fight it, run from it. David would say, in his historical context, I didn't fight any battles. You say, wait a minute, but he was the one who had the sword and he killed his tens of thousands. But it's not horses or chariots or men that I trust, but God that I trust. And so when he went into battle, he truly believed, I'm fighting only because God is fighting. Joshua, another of the types in the Old Testament pointing us to the deliverer Jesus Christ, when he led the people of Israel into the promised land, listen to me. The description of what Joshua says happened is this. God sent in front of us hornets and bees to drive them out of the land. I thought, always thought that is a beautiful way to describe what went on. The people that were possessing the land and Israel was going to take it, God defeated them. God ran them out. God conquered them. Joshua didn't conquer them. The people of Israel did not conquer them. They would have been utterly defeated, but God was on their side fighting for them. David is doing the same thing for us here. Look what he says. He says, my enemy came at me, in verse 6, and you have brought him to everlasting ruin, and you are crushing him or putting him out of memory. Why? Why is this, David? Verse 7. Because the Lord, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. It is a praise that we give to him because he is victorious over our enemies, both physical and spiritual. It is our Lord seated on the throne forever that establishes his throne for justice and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. The Lord is our victor. He is the one who has given us the victory. Justice. We praise God for his protection 
over our enemies and protection for us in justice for the big and the small. For the big and the small. Listen. In these verses we see in verse 7 and 8. He, in verse 8, he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. In David's time, that judging was being done by David and by the court judges in Israel. The people brought their cases to him. He heard their cases and judged wisely. We see that going on with Solomon, David's nearest son, who was a great king. The women came to him with a case that was very difficult, right? And it's with wisdom that Solomon was able to discern whose baby belonged to who. He did that. He was judging. The kings all judged, but they only judged as the physical representation of the Lord who sits on the throne judging. I, it applies so beautifully to us, church. Your elders in this church sit as judges, in a sense. Just pictures, just types. Paul says, listen, you should be judging the cases inside the church. Don't take those to human courts outside the church. If you have a problem with your brother in the church, take it to the judges, to the elders, and let them hear it. Why? Because don't you all know that you will judge angels at some point? If you can't judge the simple matters of earthly disagreement, how are you ever going to handle the big stuff? That's what Paul says. Again, just as David was an earthly type, we, as the church, the church universal, are an earthly type of Christ. We are the body of Christ on the earth. But the only authority that a judge in the church has is not his authority, it's whose? Christ the Lord who sits on the throne. Ultimately, he gives justice. Ultimately, he judges righteously. Okay? And so this is the beauty of it. You're being unjustly treated. You're being oppressed. You're being burdened beyond what is customary. You, no one hears you. God hears you. God hears you. And we should praise Him even in the mistrial that the true trial will not miss the mark. His justice is true. His justice is righteous. And it will be acted out on the earth. Just as a word of encouragement, as David lived a just life and as David judged the people, so we as Christians should live just lives and rightly judge one another. We should have a concern for justice. When your neighbor sins, it is your matter, not theirs. I know. It strikes against your independent core, doesn't it? Oh, no. My sin's my business. That's between me and God. You don't have anything. You can't judge me. Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged. No verse gets walked on more than that verse. Listen to me. You're living in sin. You're ignoring the Lord. You persist in your ungodliness. It's all of our concern. It's all of our concern. Not in a judgmental way. In a loving way. Because the sin that you're committing affects all of us. There's no exception. And so, just as our great king is concerned with justice for the large and the small, the rich and the poor, the oppressed, and those who oppress others, we should be concerned. One of the greatest, I think, indictments against the evangelical church of America is that our, we have a lack of concern for justice. It is our movement that stands by typically and says, well, the Lord will work all that out when he comes again. 
Meanwhile, let people get trampled. It'll be all right. That's kind of what we're saying without saying it out loud. The Lord's not pleased with that. He says, David does, the Lord sits in throne forever and he has established justice from his throne. And the point is that the preceding verses tell us that the enemies were judged. Who were they judged by? David and the armies of Israel. God judged the people. And then he acted that judgment out through his physical representatives. So we should praise God for victory over our enemies. We should praise God for justice. We should praise God for a refuge from evil. In this psalm, we see for the first time this idea of a refuge. And a refuge from evil which is acted out against us. We say to our foes, our stronghold is the Lord. Our stronghold in times of trouble is the Lord. It's going to be said in Psalm 46 also and in other Psalms that God is our refuge against our enemy. Jesus says in John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. And in Matthew 28, he says, Go you therefore and preach the gospel in all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, because I am with you till the end of the age. Hebrews 13 tells us that he is always with us and will never forsake us. The theme of scripture is that our God is with us and he will walk with us as a refuge in times of trouble and storm. We know it's true biblically, we know it's true historically, and we know it's true individually. How many of you suffer today? How many? God cares, and He is a refuge. He guards you. I want to encourage you today to praise God regardless of the conditions of your life. Praise Him from your whole heart that leads to evangelism or winning lost souls. Praise Him for the protection which He offers you in victory over your enemies, justice for the big and the small, and refuge from the evil one. And finally, praise Him for future deliverance. Based on what you have already done, God, we trust that you will further deliver your people. We look at God's protection and know that it is based on His mercy. 13. First part of 13. This is the center of the text. This is the hinge point, this is where David's psalm all points back. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death. Be gracious. Be merciful. The word is mercy. Be merciful to me, O Lord. David did not come to him as a high and mighty king who deserved to be delivered. He came to God looking for mercy. He came to God as one who had nothing to offer and everything to gain. He came to one who was broken, who needed his God to protect him. Are you approaching him that way today? Paul picks this very theme up in his text. In Ephesians chapter 2, he says that we were all children of wrath like the rest. Unrighteous people, people who deserved God's wrath, children of God's wrath. But God being rich in mercy, has loved us with that mercy. What a beautiful truth. You say, I, I've, I don't know Christ. 
I want to tell you what that means. You don't know Christ, therefore you don't have a reason to praise Him. You don't have a reason to praise Him. You don't count on His victory over your enemies. That's left in your court. You don't trust Him to protect you from your enemies. You don't trust Him as a refuge over your life. You're alone in this world. You are an orphan. You have nothing and no one who you can ultimately count on when all the cards are on the table. And what David says in 13 is, be merciful to me. Be my protector. Be the one who has a victory for me. Be the one that my whole life praises. So again, I just encourage you, Christians, continue to rely on the grace and the mercy of Christ. Come to Him with an open heart based on His mercy, not on your goodness. Secondly, Trust in the protection and know the protection that, that leads to praise. 13b, it's God's protection over us that leads to praise. Oh, you who lift up me up from the gates of death. That I, what's the cause? The final thing I want to say is that God's protection is eternal and leads to eternal praise. What's the purpose of all this? Say, Carlton, okay, I get it. I'm supposed to praise God. I, he's, he's a victor over my enemies. He's a refuge for me in a time of trouble. He gives justice to me. I can trust him in the future to do the same, but what's the point? The point is in, this, in verse 14, that I may recount all your praises. That I may tell of all your praises in the gates of the daughter of John. I may rejoice in your salvation. Let the nations know, Lord, in verse 20, that they are only men. No matter what they do against me, that you are greater than them. What's the point of all of this praise? God's glory. The confession says it this way. What is the chief end of man? Right? What is it? Yeah, that our lives might be to his glory, to know him and enjoy him, to bring glory to his name. The chief end of man is to simply bring glory to God's name. Thus, the motto of this church, for God's glory alone. The motive of the church's work in all of these areas of praise is God's glory, not ours. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 5. Let them see your good works and do what? Praise your Father in heaven. Listen. I was saying this may offend you. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about Grace Fellowship. It's not about Calhoun County. It's not about the United States. It's not, it's not about any of those things. It's about Him. All of life is about Him. So sitting in your worst day, in the deepest of depressions, trust Him and praise Him, for He is good. And His glory will extend to the ends of the earth. Yesterday, as I was praying and preparing my heart, the end of the day been a long day. I reflected over several things. I thought about the projects that we did yesterday. Many of you took part in. We went to the least 
among us, the poorest of the poor yesterday. They live in conditions that you and I wouldn't stand for. Their physical surroundings are not very good. Ten of them came to work with us. As I was working with one guy, at one point we were on the backside on Lake Street putting a frame together and this resident, it was his house, we were working on his trailer. And he's just working and he just stopped and looked at me and said, why are y'all here? And I said, because Christ has loved us and we just want to love you. Later, I came through, and he was standing on this newly constructed platform in front of his trailer, leaning on the rail. I walked by. He said, hey. I looked around. <laughs> I said, yeah. I thought something was wrong. Maybe he needs it. He said, tears in his eyes. Grown man, hardened by the world. Thank you. I said, it was our pleasure. In that moment, Praise to our Father was lifted up and a token of evangelism was done in those moments. It was bigger than building. Sometimes you say, well, I don't need to take part in those projects because all you do is just build these little wood. No, 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 no. Never think it's all about the wood that we nail together or screw together. It's about the people who will come out of the trailer on a safe place and they will, every time they see it, think, those people loved me because they were loved. A little bit of God's justice went out in 19 homes. Not a big deal. I was here doing the baptistry water and flipping through my phone, and I got a message that many of you may have seen, saw yesterday from Rick Warren. And he's asking for prayer because his 27-year-old son committed suicide. He was a believer. But from his birth forward, he had struggled with dark depression. Not any different than William Cooper. Cooper tried to kill himself several times. It just didn't work. It worked for this young man. And as I was reading through the plea of this father for his son, I thought, God is just. As difficult as this is for Rick and Kathy Warren, God is just. And as I kept reading, that's what's going through my mind. God is just. God is just. I got to the bottom and he said... Rick said, my, dad, my, my hope is this, that everything that happens to me passes through my Father's hand. And all things work to good for those who love the Lord. He closed it. And I thought, that's a man who praises God for justice and for protection. Now and in the future. And his son is dead. That's different. That's not like the world. So if you're here and you're saying, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I'm just not sure about this. Let me tell you. The proof is in the pudding. Proof is in who our God is. The proof is in what he has done and what he is doing. The proof of his character, the praise of his name is his goodness and his works in all situations. So test him and know that he is good. Taste and see. That's what I invite you to do. Taste and see. Come to him with bowed knee and reverent heart. Confess him as Lord. Trust in his goodness. Father, as we close.